I'm Jamie. And I'm Nikisha, and this is Talking Horror with Jamie. And Nikisha. Where we share our love for spooky things and talk horror through the lens of human behavior. Welcome, guys. Welcome. Welcome. And today we are talking about the movie that best describes why you should not run away and join the circus. The 2021 (laughs) American psychological thriller film Nightmare Alley. You stole it, didn't you? Oh, I see an older man. Oh, the boy hates him. Oh, the boy would love to be loved, but he hates that man. (laughs) Death. Death and the wish of death. He thought that was. That was his pride, my father. Was it now? That's it. That's it. That's it. Can we have some? Yeah, I could throw some circus. I could throw some circus tunes in there. Beautiful, and we have a lot to talk about in this one. But it is directed by uh, one of our favorite directors. I would dare to say on this podcast, we favor his stuff, uh, Guillermo del Toro. And this film was made from a screenplay by Del Toro and A1 Kim Morgan based on the 1946 novel of the same name by William Lindsay Gresham. And it stars Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, and David Strathairn, to name a few. Now, before we get into all of this, uh, obviously there's going to be heavy, heavy spoilers. We are going to be talking about everything Nightmare Alley. Any trigger warnings, Jamie, that we should warn the people about? Uh, there is some murder, some alcohol abuse, some uh, allusions to uh, other physical abuse, uh, more murder, uh, some discussion of abortion, um, yes. Murder, suicide. Uh, I did I miss anything? Did you say uh, murder? Uh, uh, like um, sexual, uh, uh, like sexual abuse innuendo, or or, or uh, mentioning? I said like of- allusions to physical abuse, but yeah, all yeah, kinds totally. of abuse are are referenced. For sure. Well, before we get into all of that, we need a plot summary of what's going on. I mean, it's a two and a half hour long movie. What's the plot? I think the guy to do it is the random male noise <laughs> that is producer Brian. Fantastical. All right. All right. Um, 
Yeah, who wants to time me? I, I oh, you got it? I can. I can. Okay. Jamie's going to do it. Yes. I'm going to do it. All right. Are you ready? Ready, Freddy. All right. It's Jamie, actually. Sorry, and sorry. <laughs> go. Okay. So we meet this guy named Stan who doesn't talk for 20 minutes at the beginning of this movie. However, uh, he joins a circus. Basically, he is on a bus. He joins a circus. He meets all these funny folk. Um, and one of them is um, David Shrutherin, whose name is Pete in this movie. And Pete is a drunk. And Pete teaches him basically how to be a mentalist. All the tricks, all the the trades to it. Um, and in this circus, there's also, like, everyone has a different part. There's one part that's a geek. It's typically an alcoholic or an addict of some sort that they take advantage of. And they kind of make him do um, not-so-humane things to entertain the crowd. Uh, but it is an illegal practice. Um, so they're always kind of being taken down by the police. When they are taken down by the police, he shows off his mentalist skills he's spectacular at it he's essentially a con man um we know that in his background he has some father issues we later find out that he hated his father and he ended up killing his father through like cold weather um and then he burns down the place and that's why he's escaping um but he meets rooney mana rooney mara on the uh on the circus and they go to the big city to live out their dreams. And he's headlining as a mentalist. He meets Kate Blanchett, who is a psychologist, psychiatrist. I wasn't hundred percent sure. And essentially um, he gets information about her clients and he uses them to trick them mentally, uh, like as a mentalist to help them. Um, and it ends up backfiring because he meets another patient who's a nut job. Uh, and then he has to end up like he involves his wife. Um, he has to end up killing the guy. Um, and then he kind of, he starts drinking. He doesn't drink the whole time. Um, and then he starts drinking. And then essentially what happens is he is, becomes an alcoholic because he goes down this road. Um, and then he looks for a job in the circus again. And this time he accepts the geek role. And so his life has come full circle down the drain into nightmare alley. Good job. You had like 10 seconds left. Yes. That's the plot. Amazing, amazing work. It will never not be funny. It will never not be funny. So let's just get into it. Just some general things that you liked, observed about the movie, and I'll go first in just saying that even though this is a two-and-a-half-hour-long runtime there's a lot going on and not a lot going on, and I like that because I appreciate the fleshing out of characters in a movie to really get the depth and the stakes of the movie mm. and the character. Uh, I will, and I'm mostly leaning towards Bradley Cooper, obviously, because there are other people where I might have wanted to see more. I couldn't actually tell you what I would want to see, but I enjoy his character arc, and I, of course, enjoy the cinematography. I love melding the old with the new and this is considered or at least what wikipedia said neo noir in uh, filming and cinematography and i just appreciate that style of filming because it adds a little je ne sais quoi to the filming experience for the audience member and you're not just sure, sure. watching a story uh and and watching these actors be fabulous and amazing which could be enough but mm -hmm. i just like that the added essence of having a little bit of pizzazz into the cinematography that 
puts you in certain moods, especially with the lighting and how some of the scene transitions are. And it just sets up some of the emotions that you're supposed to feel as an audience member. So that just brings you even more into the story as opposed to you just visually watching something. It just really brings in kind of the emotion uh, for me. And so I enjoyed this. It kind of makes me want to read the book because I did not realize that it was from a book. Have you any of you guys read the book? Mm-mm. No, okay. I can't read. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what you can do? Talk horror. Fabulous. But that's all I have is things that I like. You guys? Either one? Um, I, I I haven't watched like a lot of noir, film noir. Um, but I do I I liked that element of it, um, you know, very old timey. Who doesn't like to to jive with some old timeyness now and <laughs> yes, then? I'm the um, old timey. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, like I, I really love um, like a lot of the actors in in this. But to be totally honest, this I don't know how much this was for me. Um, I don't. Am I allowed to talk about? What I didn't yes, like. You okay, I didn't know if I could only talk about the things I liked right now. Um, yes, I. It just it felt really long, and I feel like you could have cut an hour out of this of like mm. the the carnival stuff. Like I didn't need to see all of the all of the acts and all of that stuff. Like I think we could have gotten to him learning like some master, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, montage of him, like learning how to be a mentalist, um, and like cut out a lot of the, the other stuff and, and, you know, still, still kind of come full circle about like learning what the geek is and having him end up there. Um, it just felt really unnecessary. I also didn't understand Bradley Stan's relationship with, um, Xena at all. Um, like it made no sense to me. I, I, there just didn't seem to be a point. Like it was clear that, um, that Xena and Pete, uh, were already like, you know, taking Stan under their wing, but like why I, I I just didn't understand. Oh yeah. We didn't mention like the, the, the brief sex scene in this, but there is a brief sex scene. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I was just like, why is this happening? It just didn't make any sense to me. Um, and then my main thing that was like even more confusing, and maybe I'm more harsh on this character because I'm a mental health professional, but like, I just didn't understand the point of, of Lilith. I didn't understand like what, what was Kate, like, what was the purpose of all of this? Why did she betray him? Why did she mm-hmm. put him through all of that? She didn't need the money. It wasn't about the money. I was like, was she really that embarrassed at that first interaction that she like went through this whole thing? Yeah. yeah. To just, to just betray him at the end. It yeah. really just didn't make any sense to me. Um, and then the last, last thing, sorry, I realized I, I have more gripes than I thought, is I don't understand why he started drinking. I don't understand why Stan started drinking. In the beginning, they make it clear that, like, his father was an alcoholic, and it obviously mm-hmm. deeply impacted him, and he was like, I'm never going to touch booze. Then he accidentally, not so accidentally, murders someone related right. to booze, and so... 
it, like, it's clear that he has an aversion to it. And then he's like, you know, un, like uncomfortably drinking it in front of, um, Kate Blanchett, maybe as like a, like we're shaking on it. We're both in this together kind of moment, but like mm-hmm. what the alcohol that t- like touches his lips. And all of a sudden he's like, I need more. Like, it just didn't make any sense to me how I, I understand how alcoholism and substance abuse works. I don't yeah. understand like why he started drinking. I, it just doesn't make sense. So that's, that's being great with Jamie. Yes. Great, but just to maybe give some type of explanation and this is just solely me and I'm probably reaching for the stars here, uh, <laughs> but for him to have alcohol, it seems as though what was happening is that because he has gained all of this power or believes that he has all of this power now, which was one of the main themes of, you know, this is too powerful for you. If you get into it, then you'll start believing the lies. And so mm-hmm. maybe in a sense, he thought he believed that he had to, the power to not be, to not succumb to alcoholism like mm-hmm. his dad. And so with that, it was another kind of power play within himself to say, I have reached this level of not immortality, but in a sense that that essence to where he now can say, well, I wasn't touching this stuff because I knew what it did to such and such person, but maybe because I've gained all of this knowledge and power and can control myself and control other people with his manipulations that he can control himself and not fall into the alcoholism that he has seen throughout his life. That's the only Mm -hmm. explanation I can give for it. That's my answer. I'm sticking to it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, well, that, those well, are, yeah, that was all the things that I had been like processing post, post watch. Yes. And we'll definitely get into some more of alcoholism as it pertains to the psychological standpoint. But Brian, do you have some likes or gripes? We should have that in the section. Likes oh, and good. gripes. Likes and gripes. Mm. Um, good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, I liked this movie. I don't think it was perfect, uh, but I, I agree with both of you. I think that it could have been a half hour shorter and still gotten the point across. Um, however, I like you, Nikisha love the extra moments to establish tone and Mm -hmm. to really lay down thematic elements and give characters a little bit more of an inner life and layers by showing a little bit more of their journey towards the end. However, I do think that it could have been a half hour shorter in places and trimmed down in order to still achieve the desired effect. I um, also didn't buy into the fact that he just like all of a sudden became an alcoholic. However, I narratively understand why, like for the narrative, for the, the, the change in character, for all that. I just didn't emotionally buy it, if that makes sense, mm. in the context of the movie. Um, I actually thought that uh, Kate Blanchett was in a different movie than everybody else. I think that <laughs> the, I think that everybody okay. was was grounded noir. And she was like 1940s noir, if that makes sense. I feel like everybody was grounded in something realistic, whether it was the Ron Perlman character or the Willem Dafoe character, who like were were very noir, very like campy in some ways, but also grounded in some sort of reality, whether Ron Perlman like made a promise to her father to keep her safe or whether, um, you know, uh, 
Willem Dafoe says that line to him where he's like, uh, um, you know, we all have secrets or something like that. Like, like there's a very grounded, like, and even the Rooney Mara character um, and, and the Bradley Cooper character, obviously. But I, I felt like mm-hmm. she was kind of in this like, like different noir, like almost like a, um, a Sin City type of movie instead of this one. I don't think she was bad. I, she just felt out of place. And then what cemented that for me is I agree with Jamie. I didn't understand her motivation. And, and that's not to say Kate Blanchett didn't have one. I just think the movie didn't do a good job of, uh, narratively weaving it in i also believe that a lot of her and her her actions were based on the fact that he humiliated her um in front of that group and that's like not who what she wants who she is um you know i think it's insinuated that she was attacked uh by men Mm -hmm. potentially or something to that effect uh and uh you know maybe she didn't like to have uh the power that he had over her in that room humiliated her whatever the case may be Mm -hmm. because also, the common theme also in this movie is like potentially he was sexually abused. Um, Rooney Mara makes that comment. Uh, what's her name? Molly. Um, mm-hmm, Molly. Rooney Mara makes that comment about how she's a virgin. Well, you know, but she makes that comment about how like, but she's a virgin uh, in terms of like consent. Um, and mm-hmm. so that was very upsetting. But I think there's also this like idea that you know the the idea of power and sexual power and just power in general over people mental power um because like yeah he's a mentalist over you know over her um over the crowd but also like willem dafoe was a mentalist over the geeks you know what i Mm -hmm. mean so there's there's it's 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 kind of about like who's in power in that moment um i do love movies like this where there's no exposition um no there's no verbal exposition it's all told in character beats as well as flashbacks because we don't find out his name is Stan until 20 minutes in when somebody else says his name. He never introduces himself. And I love that type of storytelling. Um, but overall, I wasn't like inspired by the story. I like Gamel del Toro's tone just in general, whether it's this or whether it's shape of water or the, 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 mm-hmm. um, the, uh, Hellboy movies or, or Pan's labyrinth or I, I've never, the only one I haven't seen is, uh, what is it? Crimson peak um mm-hmm. oh yeah mm-hmm. that's the one i haven't seen uh but uh yeah i i'm 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 torn on this movie i'm still absorbing it uh, i'm glad i saw it i'm glad i saw it on hbo max um mm-hmm. uh i thought it yeah. was the performances were really good in general um i think rooney mara was a little wasted in this even though the last 20 minutes are very exciting and i think she adds to that um yeah. but uh yeah and then like again power them in the bathroom at the, at the bus station like him talking her down from that, like he's able to do all those things. Um, there's an ego there. There's power. Um, mm-hmm. This movie just about power dynamic, but I just didn't understand. Um, my biggest flaw of this movie is not even, is not that alcohol is much, but I just didn't understand the Kate Blanchett dynamic. I didn't really understand what she was trying to do within this world. Do you hmm. feel like it was because of the writing or her acting or both? I think it was the writing. Out of place. I, okay. I, I don't think it was her performance. Um, okay. I think it was the writing. I just like, it was very vague. Everything surrounding mm-hmm. her was very vague and we never got a moment of explanation. Um, yeah. I don't necessarily need that in every movie. I, I know. I feel like the three of us are smart enough to read between the, the three of us are definitely smart enough to read between the lines. I just mm-hmm. felt like there wasn't a lot to read between the lines. And I think that's, I think that's a writing thing and there weren't any character beats in there to even allow her to kind of like give us a wink nudge nudge into what she's actually doing. 
Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I agree. I have definitely not an explanation for that. Yeah. <laughs> and even you guys bringing it up, that was one of the things that I didn't even think about because it was there was no answer there. She just kind of fell in the background as just someone who was a villain who just added, well, quote unquote villain, who just added to sure. the dramatics of the movie, but not necessarily like a character, what are you doing here type situation. And on the flip but, side of that, uh, if, I, if, I, if I may add, the Richard mm-hmm. Jenkins character, when he just brings up that uh, – he like in in pat not in passing, but he's trying to he's trying to get all of his sins out of his system so that he can see his yeah. his his um uh his girlfriend his fiance his wife his mistress whatever she was um uh and then he mentions that he hurts young girls and he hurts girls um mm. I, that was interesting to me because we got a little insight into this horrendous character. I didn't need to know more about him in that way. His mm-hmm. little insight there gave me enough about him and we knew he was a monster we knew something was off about this in a more like not just like rich obnoxious person way but in like lack of a temper um or 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 lack of a filter on his temper and then when he mentions that to him in the park or in in not the park in his grounds that's when like the tension starts to build with bradley cooper's character and with you as the audience member so i didn't need any more information about that um i like that sprinkling in of something horrendous as opposed to Kate Blanchett. i feel like we just never got bef- behind the surface right mm-hmm. yeah absolutely well speaking of Kate blanchett and her role as a psychiatrist psychologist who i think knows? she's I think a psychologist psych- okay I thought it said at some point it said psychiatrist on her card or something. I don't know. But either way, Jamie, questions <laughs> about this, specifically the first therapy session that mm-hmm. Stan has. And to me, it just seemed very invasive, the questions that she was asking. It seemed like she was trying to get something out of them and not in a let's heal and release way, but... <laughs> She had (laughs) an ulterior motive that we all have decided we don't know what that is. But can you just give me your general thoughts about that session, if you had any? Also totally cool if you didn't. (laughs) It was super weird. I mean, it's really interesting because we've now watched a few movies of like the, quote, intake sessions of different Mm -hmm. uh, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists with uh, nefarious intentions. I know Brian loves the word nefarious. Um, Spectacular word. (laughs) um but yeah this one was a little i again i'm also like why like why did he agree to this she Mm -hmm. was like i i want you to like be honest with me and then she's just like asking a whole bunch of things and i guess like no this felt really unusual to me um for a lot of the reasons that i think i said about um uh hypnotic is that like that first session typically I feel like is more is probably the most directive and action oriented when it comes to like Mm -hmm. info gathering. This was like, this was her using the same tools that I think he used as a con man. Like Mm. this was essentially her, I, I feel like they were just saying that she's like a con woman where she's able to read him and be like, Oh, so like, tell me about like, tell me about your relationship with your father and tell me about your mom. Mm-hmm. And, Oh, I noticed that you winced when I poured the alcohol. What was that about? And like, right. Just like really gunning for it. And like, 
you know, it's, it's obviously really confrontational. Um, and I use that word because like there are approaches where you can be confrontational with clients, but like it, it doesn't look like that. (laughs) It's not like aggressive in its confrontation. It's like reflecting back what, what you're like hearing. So like, you might say like, Oh, I've noticed that like, you know, um, your body language sometimes changes when we talk about your job. Like, have you ever noticed that? Um, Mm. and that's like confrontational, but not, not aggressive of like, Oh, like, do you hate your job? That's also, I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to remember exactly what she said, but there were moments where, I mean, definitely her tone was aggressive, but I feel like she was saying things that were really leaving. And like, that's also not really, you know, the, but I mean, there's, there are spaces where you can ask like not open-ended questions to like, get, again, gather information and, and, um, you know, ask for clarity and things like that. But like, you shouldn't be like putting words in your client's mouth. Like no, that's not, right. that's, that's not really an, like, it's not an experience for them. Then it's just about yeah. her. And she's like, she's not info gathering to help him. She's info gathering for herself. And like right. that I think is, I mean, that is a big no-no when it comes to therapy. Like the things that we're, the tools that we're using, the questions that we're asking, it's not about us and like our curiosity. It's about like, is it serving the client for me to ask a question? Like, is this going to help the client have a better understanding of what's impacting them? Is this going to help the client, um, you know, have more insight into why they might be acting in this way? But once it becomes about like, you as the therapist, that's a problem. Um, and like, it's very clear that she's just trying to gather this information on him, you know, so Mm -hmm. that she has ammo against him, you know, for her big, uh, her big reveal at the end. Um, but that's, that is all a big no, no, a no, no in the psychology world. Don't do that. Don't, don't don't be be doing that. that. (laughs) So this is, just a random question for my own benefit, but the whole thing of when you see in movies and TVs of the patient going into the therapy session and lying down on the couch and that and spewing all of their feelings. So just the lying on the couch, <laughs> is that a thing? Like, where did that come from? All of my therapy sessions have been uh, via Zoom, even pre-pandemic. So... <laughs> I've never even sat inside of an office. I don't I don't know what her office looks like. I don't know if there's a big comfy cozy chair pull out ottoman. I don't know. But what is it with where did that come from? Because it's been in a lot of different movies and medial things. So can you kind of tell me what the heck is that? <laughs> yeah. Wait, before you um, start, let me lie down. Oh yeah. Can you get comfortable? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um I, yeah, like that's been in like cartoons and like every, it's like the very stereotypical, uh, like psychoanalysis, um, thing. And I think like, I mean, I very much associate it with like psychoanalysis, which is a a specific modality of therapy where it's like Mm. way more open-ended Wait, Like this is, this is also kind of like going back to like Freud and, and some of the, those like more old school, um, like ways of thought, but like psychoanalysis is still done. Um, 
And I think part, and in terms of like the, the fainting couch type deal, I've never seen one of those in a therapy office, but most of the therapy offices that I have been in have some kind of couch. Um, but like a normal, like a love seat, if you will, um, that right. you, that you might have in your house. Um, nothing that's like, oh, um, oh my, oh my word. Right. Um, but I do, I think that there's something to like the psychoanalysis process, which is, um, not as, uh, action oriented and like is more deep and definitely, you know, historically has gone into like early childhood experiences and like mm-hmm. process it, process and like just kind of whatever's coming up, um, being able to talk through that, which like you kind of do see with Bradley Cooper. Um, he's just kind of like saying a string of things. He mentions, um, he mentions the name of the, the person that his mom had an affair with or left right. his father for. So like it's, there's something about that experience that I think, you know, sometimes can, can stir up some, some thoughts and feelings in people, um, mm-hmm. that then like the therapist can help that person process. Um, I think also like just something to the notion of like lying down in a therapy session for some people might offer a sense of comfort, um, mm-hmm. uh, a sense of like, you know, like dreaming, for example, um, a lot of, there's a lot of like interest in like dreams and like the subconscious with psychoanalysis too. So I think like kind of simulating that type of like physical, like the physicality to lying down, um, Mm -hmm. can potentially like maybe evoke some more of that in that space. Um, but I think for the most part it's, uh, yeah, it's like way more associated with like old school psychoanalysis, I don't, I don't, I really don't see a lot of folks still doing that unless it like looks really cute in their office, like a really nice <laughs> leather chase lounge. Um, yes. but like other than that, which like I'm told if anybody wants to, you know, get, get me that for my non-existent therapy office, I'm totally Absolutely. down. Um, but yeah, I think it's just like, you know, to, to help get somebody comfortable while they're like accessing all of these parts in their brain, um, in the therapeutic process. Well, speaking of processing, (laughs) there is kind of this underlining, maybe golden rule of the mentalists as far as being able to probe their potential victims and mark their mark. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> all those, all those words to say their mark. And Pete first Wait, there says was, that there was no one named Mark in this movie. I don't think his name was Stan. Oh, well, I was thank thinking you. of uh, Wahlberg, you know, one of the Wahlbergs was in there. Oh yeah. Mark's Your Mark. Mark. <laughs> all <laughs> mentalist mark. marks are Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. What an image. Oh my God. I love that. Say hi to your mother for me. Oh, God. (laughs) Well, uh, Pete in this says that there's always father trouble. And so then there's the whole thing of, oh, there's always parental trouble. I think Kate Blanchett had a similar line in that as well. And I just want to ask, where does that come from? Why do you think that he was making that assumption? Because I know that... Also a a trope 
that might have some factualness to it is that if there is some type of issue, you start with your parental situation. Not that they are the issue, but if you are doing maybe an intake or talking to your client as such that it, your parental figures will come up in some way, whatever that leads to is whatever it leads to. But I guess my question is, do you believe that there is always some type of parental whatevers with, with people or, you know, how do you feel about that statement in general, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's like, I think that they're trying to say that there's an an easy assumption to saying that like, you know, if you have some kind of issue that it all goes back to the parent in the same way that that's like, it's so stereotypical, like the psychoanalysis on the lying down on the couch stuff. Like there's Mm -hmm. like all of that is, is all like very core to the themes in, in this is, is these kind like somewhat antiquated views of mental health, but like it does still resonate in a lot of ways because like, you know, we've talked about generational trauma. We've talked about like Mm -hmm. how, how parents can influence their children and like, you know, how could that not just, um, like genetic and and genetically and biologically in terms of mental health, um, but also just like experientially, um, and, and like that parenting, you know, like how people parent and attachment style, all of that, how does that influence, you know, who you grow up to be? So I think it's Mm -hmm. really, I think that when they talk about like identifying a mark and trying to figure out like, what are the things that they can do or say that like resonate? And it's all just about like, if they can get one hook, then, then that's what they need. And I think they picked something that's like, general enough that can apply to most people, but also like not totally, not like so specific that it would then box somebody out. And so I think that's, that's what they're trying to say. And again, it's like, could you say that like, maybe there was a point in your life that there could have been some kind of like disconnect or tension or conflict with your parents? Mm -hmm. Like I would say for a lot of people I know for, for most people I know, uh, yes. Um, even for myself, for sure. Um, so I think it's just easy. I think what they're saying is that it's easy to make an assumption that like somebody has some kind of parental baggage because Mm -hmm. like, it's just so common in, in a variety of ways of what that actually looks like. So he just happened to be like super right. And again, like all of the all the things from both that, but then also in the, in the beginning with like Pete and the talking about the watch and, and yeah. going through that process, it's like, he really like nailed it in terms of what information he was able to narrow it down to. But mm-hmm. also again, like, could that potentially apply to like a huge amount of people? I think so. So yeah. again, it's like, ha- but like as the, I think the other thing is like as as a as humans we are we we will always like view ourselves like we are egocentric like we view ourselves as like mm. bigger than everyone else and I don't mean this in like everyone's a narcissist but like I think yeah. we all have tendencies where like you know we're we're we are highlighting our own experiences cuz that's all we know right like we only know mm. our own lived experiences so mm. I think too if somebody like they I forget exactly 
how they say it, but they say something along the lines of like, you know, people just want this like certain type of experience. And I think that that's true in that, like, we want to feel special. We want to feel unique. I think the Mm -hmm. idea that like someone's able to like, you know, uh, give information that lands with some part of us. This is like, I, I'm not anti astrology by any means. I don't fully understand it, but like mm-hmm. there have been moments where I'll read things and I'm like, wow, like this super lands with me. Like I'm a cancer. So anytime anyone says like cancers are emotional, I'm like, yeah, totally. But then I'll read <laughs> other things for other people. And I'm like, but this also kind of applies to me. Absolutely. So then I'm like, what do I make of this? And again, like I have a very barely basic understanding of astrology. So please don't come for me. But like mm-hmm. I think that there's something to like looking for inform, seeking out information that feels like it resonates with me and like mm-hmm. being so receptive to it and like, yes. like holding on to it. And so like, I think that's part, and I think that's also part of what they're saying about like the types of people who are going to these events yes. are people who like want to feel that. And so it's like going both ways of like, they're working with a crowd that is open enough where that, where these, these, um, techniques and tools like are super effective on them. Like, Mm -hmm. like the, the judge, like he so badly wants this, like this connection to find relief. And so like it, it lands for him because he wants it. He wants to believe it to be true. And so it's going to work. And so I think that that's why, you know, saying anything that's like close enough to, uh, to us, whether it's like early childhood experiences, experiences Mm -hmm. with our parents, even if they're not great, we could be like, Oh yeah, I was such a jerk to my mom in middle school. I was like, the worst kid ever. And then, and then be like, Oh yeah, that's me. And so I think Mm -hmm. it's, I think there's like all of these things that are at play that make it, um, that, that make folks like really susceptible to those types of comments. Yeah. I think the, what they were saying was everybody wants to be seen. Mm, So that mm -hmm. absolutely makes sense that any little thing you're going to say, oh, that is about me. Even if it's a small piece of me, that's something that you're resonating with. And that's a great explanation about just the ego and slight narcissism things. It's wonderful, wonderful uh, things. Jamie's preaching up in here. Uh, But (laughs) (laughs) yeah. If someone wants to do like an astrology reading on me, I would find that very interesting and fascinating. So thank you. I want to know what I'm rising, moon, sun, like all of that. Oh, absolutely. I just, my dad randomly sent me my birth certificate. And what was the first thing I did was pop it into an astrology thing to see what my, <laughs> what my ascending and rising was. Uh, but as a fellow cancer, yes, Jamie, somebody do a, a reading Wait, on have you, like, is it your birth time? Is that yeah. how you find that? Oh, I, but I know. Oh my God. So I can Google it right now. I know what my birth time right is. Yes. Oh my God. I'm, I'm really excited <laughs> to get this information. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I'll, I am going to let you do that and look it up because I'm curious to see what yours. But <laughs> this is a question for both of you guys. But Brian, you can answer this too. And this is just a random trying to figure out what this movie is or answer questions from the movie. But sure. are we to believe that Pete uh, – sorry, Stan did say that he gave the poison to Pete – but in the therapy session, it's he said that he did it by accident. Are we believing this? Is this a yes or no? Or do you think that he absolutely 
gave the poison to Pete on purpose so that he could take the book. He was already formulating plans anyway of taking uh, Runa's character away and all that, all that jazz. But how do you feel about that? I'm just curious to see if you, what do you think? Um, I think that he did it. I don't think that they, <clears throat> I think the movie is super vague about it. I don't know if the movie is trying yeah. to be that vague or if they just didn't do a good job of setting up whether he did it or not. Um, because you have Willem Dafoe telling him like, this is the difference between the two. Like, mm-hmm. like there are very specific differences <laughs> and then they set that up and then he goes in there and he puts the money in and he, we don't see which side he takes it from. When he sees him dead on the ground, he kind of doesn't really have any reactions. He seems a little right. bit surprised. I don't know if he's acting that, if he's conning there. And then later on, he like kind of gives two answers. I personally believe that he absolutely did it on purpose. I think that if he didn't do it on purpose, they would have dealt a little bit with how he felt about the accident of doing it. Um, mm. I think it benefited him too much to not do that. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So that's what I that's what I think. I think that he actually did it. I don't know if the movie does a good job of pointing you in that direction, but then I don't think it does enough to point you in the other direction. And typically, right. if a movie doesn't push you one way or the other, it's probably the more sinful thing, if that makes sense. Mm, that's an interesting concept. Yeah. What about you, Jamie? Um, sorry, I missed the question because I've been calculating my signs. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Very, very urgent. Uh, <laughs> it's an urgent research matter. Research I'm doing over here. <laughs> uh, no, I just wanted to know if you thought that Stan got... Oh, if he did it on purpose. On purpose, yeah. I think he did it on purpose. I think that he... I mean, we've already... Like, we already know that he's killed before. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that... I yeah, I just I think that he is a not good guy that tries to pass as a like naive person. Mm-hmm. Like I think that he like acts like he's naive but is not actually naive. Um yeah. and and yeah, I think he did it. <laughs> Beauty. Well, my last question for for you, Jamie, uh, as I know you have, we have important matters to to figure out right now with this astrology. But mm-hmm, on the mm-hmm. subject of alcohol, can you mm. just describe to us how what my favorite beverages? <laughs> right. So we can, so you guys can send it to us, please. Uh, <laughs> but how can substance abuse, any kind of substance abuse, of course, this one is mostly talking about alcohol in this movie, but how can that be addressed from a psychological standpoint? Just in general, I mean, obviously there's meetings and things, but how would you address that? Yeah. I mean, there's, I think that like the meetings is, is definitely a part of it in terms of, um, like a support system, especially because, you know, they talk a lot in Alcoholics Anonymous about like people, places and things, um, Mm -hmm. I think is like part of it. And so like, you know, avoiding the people that maybe you're more likely to drink or use substances around as a way to work through it. And then like having a system of people who like also have shared empathy and compassion for one another because they're all going through it together and they know what it's like. Um, I think, um, oh, another, uh, oh, an effective therapy approach with, um, 
substance use is this approach called motivational interviewing, um, Mm. where it's about helping, it's about shifting people's thoughts into a state of ambivalence around their behavior. Mm. Um, and so, uh, there's, there's like core tenets of it, which includes like being empathetic, uh, developing discrepancy of like, you know, the, the things that people are doing now versus how they want their future to look, um, not arguing with like rolling with resistance. There's like a whole, like, I forget what the acronym is, but it, it rolling. I remember rolling with resistance is one of them. Um, so you don't want to like fight somebody. You don't want to judge them. You don't want to argue with them. Um, and, um, and supporting self-efficacy and like, you know, like really, not wanting people to like lose confidence in themselves and, and, um, and reflectively listen in, in spaces with folks. Um, so that's, that's like a really effective, um, strategy, which is more like talk, talky, like it's, it's like action oriented to a a point. Um, Mm -hmm. I think even like cognitive behavioral therapy is supposed to be, um, helpful as well. Um, I've never used it in, in that, in that way. Um, but, uh, and then like there is, um, there's medication that also helps. There's, um, oh, I can't remember what it's called, but there's one, at least like with alcoholism, there's one where, um, you like take this medication. And then if you do drink, um, it makes you like violently ill. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's, and then like for other substances, there's like methadone and, and, um, suboxone and, and things like that, where, um, you know, if people are, are treating like opioid addiction, um, that these are, these are, um, things to help wean them off of, um, opioids. Never, never knew. That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, truly just the resources that we have available, guys. This is why we listened to, this is why you listen to get these resources, to get these gems of information. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that was my last question for you. Brian, yeah. do you have any questions? Sure. I do. Is it what's my astrological profile? Yes. Yes. No, my, well, my, my question actually is, this movie does a lot of, ex- characters explain things and other characters do it even though it's been explained to them. For instance, uh, the Cape Blanchett character says, like, my job is to figure out their fears and sell it back to them. And she figured out his fear was alcohol because of his dad, and she sells it back to him. You know, like, mm-hmm. like that's what he does. There's, there's a ton of that in this. And the geek, he explains to him exactly what a geek is, and at the end, he's still in a place where, like, he just accepts the level that he's gone down. How, Jamie, how broken, or not broken, maybe that's a bad word usage, but like, how, what kind of mindset do you need to be in to like, to consent to something like to becoming a geek or something like that, when you very much well know what it is, like that rock bottom, like, like, can you talk a little bit about that mindset? I mean, I think it's super hard because like, yeah, like, I mean, part of addiction is the, the dependence that we have on it. And like, you know, what, what are you willing to go through? Because like you not like you're, 
you're psychologically dependent, you're physically dependent. Um, I think that the, yeah, it's, I, I mean, it's, I think it's really difficult to talk about, but, um, I mean, also as a side note, like with alcoholism, like withdrawal can kill you. Um, so like liver, like if he is at that point where like he, he needs it that badly, then the things that, that he's willing to, to do, um, you know, he'll do in order to, to get it. But like, I think, I don't know, I have a hard time talking about like rock bottom. Cause I have kind of like mixed feelings on that, uh, idea, but I, I think that like, you know, the power that like drugs and substances can, can have on us is so mm-hmm. great that we, that we might be, uh, not necessarily willing, but like feel like we have to adjust our, our values and, and like fundamental ideas about ourselves in order to like meet yeah. this, this need because of dependence. Um, and so that's, that's, I don't know. I don't know if that's like any kind well, of helpful me, explanation. No, uh, let me reframe my question. Knowing what we know about alcoholism and being in that stage and withdrawal and what they told us in the movie about a geek. Do you believe that Bradley Cooper Stan at that moment, at the end of that movie was in a place to just accept being the geek. Um, do you think that the movie had gone far enough to show us what a rabbit hole he had fallen down in terms of alcoholism, um, in a place to accept it at the end? I mean, yes and no. Um, I think that they showed us his peak, um, like the height of, of what he was doing and, and, um, and also, the riskiest, uh, thing that he had done. Um, but like it also intersected with, with like him operating at his like highest point. And I, I think that like them introducing the alcohol at the point that they did, plus the loss of the only other person who could have like helped him. Like, I wonder if it would have looked differently if he wasn't alone. And if, um, if, uh, what's her face, if Rooney Mara's character had stuck around, um, mm-hmm. would, would this still have happened in this way? Sure. I think that there's something to like him being alone, even though he, you know, might still have these, this, these skills as a mentalist. I think so much was riding on having her because like that, that act was like a duo act. And so like, I think they're trying to show that he lost everything. He lost his, um, you know, like his, his partner, he lost his, uh, I mean, multiple partners, I guess if Kate Blanchett was like also kind of his partner in a different way. Um, and just like had his faith broken by her. Um, Mm -hmm. but like there's the in-between of like, Oh, all of a sudden he's just like homeless and, and an alcoholic and like, whatever else happened in that in-between time where he grew that really grizzly beard. Um, (laughs) but I guess like we are to assume that, you know, he did hit so-called rock bottom because I don't think that he would have ever wanted to return to the carnival. Like, I think that like part of that journey was like him leaving and being like, we're too good for this. We're never coming back. And so like for him to actually return, I think also was supposed to like, 
kind of be meaning like not just the fact that he becomes the geek, but just the fact that he even like ends up back there mm-hmm. um, sure, after sure. like leaving everyone um, with his radio in the background there and all of that. Mm-hmm, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I have one more question for Nikisha. Um, mm-hmm. They talk a lot about ego in this movie and ego is definitely in between the lines in a lot of scenes and pieces. And obviously as a performer, you need to have some sort of an ego. Can you talk mm-hmm. about like what kind of balance is needed? Because if you are a performer, you do need an ego. It does give you some sort of confidence. It keeps you from, yeah. you know, um, I don't know, getting too much in your head potentially. Um, I guess what's yeah. the balance uh, that you find or that you see other people yeah. have? And, and, and uh, yeah, I'll kind of leave that open-ended. I won't no, find absolutely. if I actually will. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I definitely will just start by saying this. I will speak on my own perspective and mm-hmm. my own behalf as, as an actor because everyone is different and everyone is dealing with stuff differently mentally to where that balance would look different on other people. So for me in particular, I think that it kind of coincides with the movie of the consequences of it all. Mm -hmm. There's no way for you to have such an extreme ego that it, things won't go South. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen that in real life with actors and with political figures or people in the, who are in the forefront who need that sense of ego, like you said, because you do need to have a little bit of it so that you can have the confidence to go out and be on stage or be in front of people or do the things, you know, that you need to do to whatever, whatever the thing is. And so I think just personally for me, having the sense of ego only goes so far as to make sure you're doing the best job that you can, the the job that has, that you are getting paid to do. And anything else beyond that ego is just a setup for disaster, whether it be you losing relationships within the business or losing relationships within your personal life. And I think it's a sense of groundedness that is needed in order to find the balance. So whatever keeps you as the individual grounded in your own reality and your own purpose in life can be a helpful tool to not go to that extreme, which again is what the movie is, is, describing in in a sense of he had so much power and he had this ability and he took it to the extreme to where he gained all of this power and then it overtook him and he suffered the consequences for that and so with power comes great responsibility where is that from that's i know this like a regular like phrase but isn't that from the specific movie spider-man spider-man oh See, terrible with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Spider-Man. I mean, Toby, Toby Maguire is my guy because I am a 90s baby. But yes, uh, he will always be my Spider-Man. I'm just going to say that. Um, That's okay. But, You're well, that thought is welcomed here. Yes. Great. <laughs> so yeah, it's just it's just a matter of consequences and, and whatever, you know, lets you sleep at night. So sure. you can't act act an ass all the time and expect everyone to just fall at your feet. You know, you got to have some, 
some accountability uh, and, Mm. you know, some trustworthiness and some sense of self and sense of selflessness Sure. in order to be able to be good at this business. Because as you can see, the people who are the nicer, the people who let their egos go are the ones that have the most success. I will point out Zendaya because she is my hero and she is fantastic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Example of someone who is an ultimate performer and does not have the ego that drives her into a sense of, you know, powerfulness that will be her demise. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Cool. Fantastic. Good good answer. Good answer. Yay. All right. So are you writing this? (laughs) (laughs) Are we rating, rating the rotten tomato? Yeah. Let's do rotten tomatoes. Fantabulous. All right. What do you think this has on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm going to say a 75. Okay. Mm -hmm. Jamie? (laughs) I'm going to say 68. All right. This has an 80%. Wow. While it may not... While it may not hit quite as hard as the original, Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley is a modern noir thriller with a pleasantly pulpy spin. Pulpy? Okay. Yeah. Uh, And then the audience score is a 68. So Jamie was very close to that. Um, Nice. And the audience says, stylish but slow, Nightmare Alley pays off with a powerful ending if you can hang in long enough to make it, that is. Truly, and well, I might be overgeneralizing, but it seems like any movie that is over the two-hour mark is going to be a slow burn. But there might yeah. be other movies to uh, to dismiss yeah. my statement. <laughs> I think no, I think movies like this. You're right. Like there aren't big action sequences. Like a two and a half hour movie, like with big action sequences, like may not be a slow burn because you're just getting these sequences. But like something right. like this, one especially if it's a noir movie, you're one hundred percent right. Yeah. Um, something, two things that I totally forgot about to mention before we go into the four S's. One is, I think I mentioned it briefly, but I really loved the last 20 minutes of this movie, like from the, the, um, setting up the wife coming into the yard and to the end I enjoyed, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, um, we, I didn't mention this during the Cape Planchette conversation at the very beginning is here's the thing we knew narratively that she was conning him. We knew that one of the twists of this movie was that she was not being totally truthful to him, whether because they set it up with the money. They set it up with like the tape recordings. They set it up with mm. so much that like you knew something was going to happen. So to me, the twist wasn't that she was tricking him or conning him. To me, the twist was going to be why, and we never got the why, so it felt like an empty twist. That's what I meant. That's what I. That's a better version of what I wanted to say earlier from my perspective. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Great. Thank you. No, that makes um, sense. <laughs> and the last thing I'll say is I thought the use of fire in this movie was awesome. I thought mm. that he burns his, he freezes his dad and then burns his dad essentially. And then anytime somebody mentions the watcher, his dad, they're lighting a cigar or a cigarette or a match 
or like mm-hmm. there's an orange glow somewhere like that like always happens throughout the movie and like it's kind of like that this like fire is burning up inside of him there's like maybe a guilt there there's maybe like that's his background like that the fire like there's lighting a fire underneath him and it's fine it's one day one of these times it's gonna like totally burn him um mm-hmm. i really liked that visual uh, that imagery and just kind of that that um that symbolism within the movie i forget that that's mm-hmm. what i meant to say earlier nice noise um, noise noise should we do the four s's Yes, please. Yes, 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 yes. Skull, scare, shakes, and suggestions. The talking horns, four S's. <laughs> okay, the four S's are skulls, scares, shakes, and suggestions. We're going to rank them one through ten, except for suggestions. And uh, we are going to see uh, how we thought they pulled off each one of these categories. So let's start with skulls. So that's um, human behavior and mental health. Uh, Jamie, why don't you start with this? What would you give it between one and ten? Um, I'm going to give it a 4.5. Um, I... Low score because Kate Blanchett is quite possibly the worst psychologist. I don't know. The guy from I was gonna say, is who's pretty worse? bad. Who's worse? Hypnotic right. guy or her? I mean, I guess hypnotic guy, but like by a smidgen. Um it's all <laughs> it's all just bad. Uh but I do think that I think that like the the way that things unfolded and um like the the connection back to like parent you know trauma and drama um mm-hmm. was like pretty realistic so I'll give it that. Nikisha, what are you thinking? I'll round it up to a 5 only because and this is like bare minimum but just the fact of having any kind of mental health expert in the movie is, you know, good for good for the skulls. So, of course, Kate Blanchett, nefarious tendencies. <laughs> but uh, I'll give yeah. it a five. Cool. I'm going to go with a six. Um, I think it's trying to do something more. I think it does it better than a lot of these movies that we've watched in terms of trying to mm-hmm. say something about human behavior and health. And 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 I think that would almost lean more into the human behavior in terms of ego, in terms of mentalists. Like, we, there were TV shows like John Edwards, like Crossing Over with John Edwards. Like, this is not like a surprising thing. He just like, he brought it to a whole nother level in terms of like being televised. So that human behavior element and like, and even we didn't even talk about like Mary Steenburgen believing everything he said and Mm. and doing a murder suicide. Like, yeah, I think he was excellent at what he did and it had major consequences. So I I would go, Mm. I would, I would, the consequences that came from his actions were very believable in terms of human behavior. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For me. Okay, cool. Next up, scares. How scary was this movie? Jamie, Nikisha. It, it was, was not, not scary. Scary. <laughs> All right. So big fat I appreciated zeros. the gore. Uh, yeah. I mean, I appreciated the gore with the running over the mm. guard yeah. man scene. Yeah. And so I'll give, I'll it, give a it a one. one. A one. <laughs> I think, yeah. I think it's ones across the board. One for me as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, especially when Mary uh, shoots her husband. Yeah, yes. that was probably the most shocking mm-hmm. part. Sure. 
Uh, so let's go with shakes. How much are you going to shake this movie off? Is this kind of forgettable? Will like the tone stick with you? Will performances? Will you know Mary Steenburgen's murder suicide thoughts mm. numbers? I give it a three uh, because I mostly because of the neo noir esque aspect of it, and I did like the development of Bradley Cooper's character in general, even though it's a really long movie and i agree it's long for no reason i would still give it a three sure jamie i think i will also give it a three um i like i've been thinking about it a little bit but it not it hasn't made me like it anymore i've just been thinking (laughs) about it um (laughs) yeah uh, I'm going to give it a four. I'm going to give it a four because I'm because I'll be grouping it. When someone asks about like Guillermo del Toro movies, like I've seen it, I'll be grouping it with the other Guillermo del Toro movies, talking about like how it mm-hmm. ranks, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm going to go with a four just because um, it has that extra boost of like a famous director who's known for his like um, production design and tone. Uh, right. Uh, so sure. I'll, I'll give it that. Okay. Suggestions. Um, what would you group this with? Uh, what would you suggest in addition to watching this movie? Uh, whomever wants to start. I oh, am terrible with suggestions, as we all know. But <laughs> in watching this movie, I just want to say this. This is not my suggestion. But it reminded me of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Just hmm. a lot going on, but not going on. But uh, the same kind of sense of we're on a journey obviously if you know more about what was happening in that time period then you're super invested in what's going on but as far as uh so i'm just saying that if you like those kinds of longer movies then watch once upon a time in hollywood Mm -hmm. but you mentioned crimson peak and i did not realize that that was guillermo del toro and maybe i did i just forgot but i i enjoyed I thoroughly enjoyed the cinematography in that movie. So I will suggest Crimson Peak since this is a horror podcast. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Jamie? Um, I was thinking more about the spooky noir, um, and I am going with The Black Dahlia. Cool. I've never seen that. Wait, really? Yeah. Oh, never I mean, it's it it, very similar. By, do you know about, like, the actual murder? No. That was me trying to be suspenseful. Murder. Yes. Um, it's based off of um, the the real life. Un- it's an unsolved uh, murder mystery, I believe. Mm. Um, Elizabeth Short uh, mm. was found mutilated in like the 40, 1947. Oh. And it was... Her case became highly publicized due to the gruesome nature of the crime. (laughs) Was that one of those, uh, the first time those kinds of gruesome pictures were put in the newspaper-esque moments? Do you know what I mean? Um, Or maybe not. That I don't know. I I am not sure. Um, I just know there was a turning point in media where... Because I, I think it was when I went to the Museum of Death in New Orleans. Either oh, way, cool. There, 
I, I think that's it, it, that's what it is. But there is a turning point in our time where newspapers were just printing out the first photos of mutilated bodies. And hmm. I don't know, it seemed like that might have been pr- probably part of that moment in time. But I'll check back in hmm. with that. <laughs> cool. Beauty. Brian, do you have suggestions? Uh- yeah, I'm I'm a little torn. You can help me. You can help me with one. So one of the original like noir movies is Double Indemnity, um, from the 1940s. It's a classic. You know, it kind of fits into that aspect of things. Um, it's with Fred McMurray and Barbara Standwick. Um, basically, there's it's an insurance salesman, and uh, they become and he come, becomes involved with a married woman, uh, who's plotting her husband's murder to like for insurance purposes. And it's all like this, like very, it's like, it's like a noir movie, if that makes sense. Um, and then yeah. the flip side of things is like, maybe just watch Pan's Labyrinth. If you want like top tier Guillermo del Toro. Hmm. So yeah, I, I'm going to, I'll say, I'll just say both of those, depending on what you're yeah, interested in. Like if you want a little bit more of that magical fantasy, but with the like layered characters go for that. If you want something a little bit more like noir, black and white, heavy movie, I would go with Double Indemnity. Um, cool. Beautiful. Well, I think that sums it up for our episode of Nightmare Alley. You can follow us on all the social meds, the Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Talk Horror Pod, P-O-D. And Brian, where can they listen to us? You can listen to us wherever you get podcasts, things like Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Rate and review us there. Uh, five stars, please. And thank you. And thank you. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. (laughs) That's how we're ending it. That's how we need to end it. Send in the clowns. We're done. I'm trying to make a clown nose sound. If you could do some clown nose sound. That'd be great. Beautiful. Thanks, guys. Thank you. (laughs) 